All right, happy Sabbath. Glad that you all are here for our Romans seminar. And did all of you get a handout? Did anyone not get the handout? Okay, so just want to make sure you have that. And then did any of you not get this little booklet that I passed out? The Mind of Christ. Okay, there you go. So um, just to explain to you, I don't know that we'll get through all of the handout and the time that we have. Um, and that's fine, but this gives you some things to look at and study further on your own. Um, and I'll make sure that we hit the most important points from the Book of Romans um, during the time we have this afternoon, and then we have two more hours tomorrow afternoon, and I hope that you can come to as much of it as possible. And then The Mind of Christ is a very nice booklet that's recently been published that goes through the issues of righteousness by faith, and it ties in to what we're talking about in the Book of Romans. So. Having said that, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer and let's start our study. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for bringing us here to this weekend to a conference that talks about being totally transformed. And as we study from the book of Romans, may it bless us and help us and challenge us. And may we understand the power of the gospel. May we really understand what it means to have the experience of justification by faith. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have studied the book of Romans? Okay. How many of you have not studied the book of Romans before? And it's okay, raise your hands. That helps me to know who I'm speaking to. So, so some of you have, some of you haven't, and that's fine. We're going to dig into this and Romans as you're going to see is a very critical book in scripture to understand now uh, I was talking with Eric Walsh last night where I was kind of joking about how I, I was saying you know Romans is so much more important than the genealogies and he was like well the genealogies are important too but then he agreed the book of Romans this is a very important passage of Scripture to understand. Genealogies are good, but Romans gets into the essence of salvation. So that's what we're going to be looking at. And when you look at the book of Romans, Romans has 16 chapters. But we're just going to look at the first eight chapters, the main points from the first eight chapters. Because it's in the first eight chapters that Paul deals with the theology of the gospel. And so that's what we're going to take a look at over the next several hours. Now, let's go ahead and open up to the book of Romans. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And let's look starting in verse 1. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1. And here we read, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Now first of all, we look at verse 1 we see the authorship of the book. Who wrote the book of Romans? 
the very first word tells us, Paul. So you want to know who your author is, and that can be helpful because then you can compare other books of scripture that Paul has written and see similar themes and you can kind of piece that together. I'll give you an example. In the book of Galatians, Paul makes some very similar points and it helps sometimes to understand some of the things he was saying in Romans a little bit better. So Paul is the author of the book of Romans and he, it also says he's a servant of Jesus Christ. He's a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God. When he says he's a servant of Jesus Christ, he's actually going to talk about what it means to be a servant to Jesus Christ in Romans chapter 6. So I'm giving you a little, a little bit of foreshadowing so that you can think ahead. But Paul can write about the gospel and he can write about being a servant to Jesus Christ, which he will do in chapter 6, because he himself has that experience. A quick point here for us to think about is we can talk about the gospel, we can preach about the gospel, we can teach the gospel, but if we're not experiencing it, then it doesn't have the same effect. So Paul, as a servant of Jesus Christ, that qualifies him to talk about calling us to be servants to Jesus Christ. And then it says he's separated unto the gospel of God. What does it mean to be separated unto the gospel of God? What Paul is saying here is, is that he's saying, I have separated myself from the things of this world. The gospel has changed my life so dramatically that I have separated myself from this world and I have dedicated myself completely and fully to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now the question we have to ask ourselves is, have we separated ourselves to the gospel of God? Because if we want to go out and be workers for God to proclaim the gospel, we need to be separated to the gospel of God. Amen? Now, continuing on in verse 2. And he puts some parentheses here. So he's making a quick parenthetical statement about the gospel. So he's like, Paul, I'm an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ separated to the gospel of God. And then he says in parentheses, which he had promised afore or before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Okay. How many of you have heard that the Old Testament teaches the law and the New Testament teaches grace? Raise your hands if you've heard that. Guess what? Paul the gospel scholar just said that the Old Testament proclaimed the gospel. Okay? So don't let people tell you that 
There's Old Testament Christians and New Testament Christians. All we want to be is biblical Christians. Old and New Testament. Let's not divide up the Old and the New Testament. So Paul says, this gospel that I'm separated unto, it was talked about before in the Scriptures. In the Old Testament. And it, if you read the book of Romans carefully, especially the first eight chapters and onward, Paul is quoting liberally from the Old Testament to make his points. And we're going to see that when we study Romans chapter 4, which is one of the chapters we will look at in this seminar. Okay, so Paul, he's, he's all excited here. He's saying, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm called to be an apostle. I'm separated under the gospel of God. And this gospel was promised in the past in the Old Testament. And the question is, what is this gospel? Well, first of all, what does the word gospel mean? It's good news. So Paul is separated to the good news of this message that he's about to proclaim. More in the red bag over here, too, if you need more. And what is it that he's going to proclaim about this gospel? Notice what it says in verse 3. Verse 3 answers the question because Paul is really excited about this gospel that he's going to proclaim. Notice what the gospel is about. Concerning who? His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, why is the gospel good news? Because the, go the gospel talks about Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, the gospel is good news because it talks about Jesus Christ. But what about Jesus Christ is good news? What is it about Jesus Christ that makes the gospel the gospel? Well, let's let Paul keep speaking. Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. So what's the good news of, of the Gospel? It's that Jesus Christ is Lord, that the Gospel is talking about Jesus Christ. That's the good news. And what about Jesus' good news? It's that He was a human being. He was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Okay, what about Jesus being a human being is good news? Okay, why is the gospel such good news that Jesus was made of the seed of David according to the flesh? Well, let me give you a couple of things to think about. First of all, the seed of David. That means that Jesus came from the genetic line of David. And in Hebrews chapter 2, it said he was made of the seed of Abraham, which goes back even farther. Now, when you think about that, you have to ask the question, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David. Abraham and David... Were they born 
before Adam sinned or after Adam sinned? After Adam sinned. So it doesn't say that Jesus was made of the seed of Adam before he sinned. It said Jesus was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. And Paul expands on that in Romans chapter 8 verses 3 and 4. But there's a couple of key reasons why Jesus being a human being, specifically of the seed of David, is such good news with respect to the gospel. Why do you think it's good news that Jesus became a human being with human flesh from the line of Abraham, from the line of David, after the fall of man? Well, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death. Notice. Jesus had to take man's nature after the fall in order to die for us. Man was not subject to death until there was sin. Once Adam sinned, every human being who has ever been born has been subject to death. And Jesus, he was subject to death because he took man's nature after man had sinned. Now, we're not going to have time to talk too much about the nature of man right now and the nature of Christ, but I'm just saying that Jesus had to take the nature of man after sin entered the world in order for him to die so that he could be a sacrifice for our sins. So the gospel is good news because it's talking about Jesus who became a human being so that he could die for our sins so that we could be delivered from our sins. Amen? And Paul continues on. But actually, that's, and let me say one other thing. But he not only became a man so that he could die for us. Romans 8, 3 and 4 talks about how he condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. So Jesus became a man so that he could die for us. He became a man with the nature of man after man had sinned. But he also took our nature after man had sinned to demonstrate that humanity united with divinity can fulfill the righteousness of the law. And that, those two elements of the humanity of Christ is what makes the gospel so powerful. Paul, he's a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel or the good news of God, which was talked about in the Old Testament. And this good news is that Jesus came as a human being with the nature of man after man had sinned so that he could be a sacrifice for our sins and an example for us to follow. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And in reality, we could almost stop right now and say, that's what Romans is talking about. But we're going to go deeper because Paul goes deeper. And I'm glad that he does. Let's keep going here. Continuing in verse 4. This is what Paul says. After he talks about how Jesus was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, there's more about 
the gospel than that even. Verse 4, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power. It's according to the spirit of holiness. He was resurrected from the dead. And you may be wondering what Paul is talking about there. He gets into this in greater detail at the end of Romans chapter 4 and in, the, in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, he says in verses 3 and 4, he says, Like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So this resurrection from the dead, this spirit of holiness, it's connected to living a new life. Christ was raised from the dead, and just as Christ was raised from the dead, we will be raised to live a new life of righteousness by faith. And we're going to get into that when we get into chapter 4 and chapter 6 of Romans. Paul is just setting the stage here for what he's going to talk about and what we're going to look at. And then in verse 5, notice, it says, By whom... So we've received this from Christ by whom we have received grace and apostleship for what purpose? For obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. So what is this grace and apostleship that we've received in the gospel? What's the purpose for? So that we can go out and live a life of fun and do whatever we want and just be thankful that we're covered by Christ even though we're still living the same old life of sin that we've lived all along? Is that what the gospel's about? No. Verse 5 says, we've received grace and apostleship, and here's the reason why, for obedience to the faith. So the gospel, the purpose of the gospel is for us to live an obedient life. Does that make sense? And then in verse 6, Among whom are ye the, also the called of Jesus Christ. So, we are called of Jesus Christ. So, these first six verses give us a brief nutshell to the gospel. Number one, Paul, he's a servant of Jesus Christ, and he's going to show us that those who have been transformed by the gospel, we will be servants of Jesus Christ. And let, let me give you a little foreshadowing of the prophetic nature of this message. You realize that the 144,000 in the book of Revelation are, are described in chapter 7 as the servants of God who will receive the seal of God in their foreheads. So Paul is saying, I was a servant of Jesus Christ. Let me teach you how to be a servant of Jesus Christ so that you, living in the last days, can receive the seal of God in your foreheads. Do you want that? You want to receive the seal of God? Amen. And then he says, I'm going to show you how to be a servant of Christ. I'm called to be an apostle, but you have been called 
to receive grace and apostleship. I'm separated under the gospel of God. I've separated myself from my past, from the things of this world. We are to be separated from this world to live unto God fully and completely. That's what the gospel does. And the reason why we can separate ourselves from the things of this world, from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, from the pride of life, is because the gospel teaches us that Jesus was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. And as Hebrews 4 says, he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He walked in your shoes. He knows how to help you. Not only will he save you by forgiving your sins, when you come boldly to the throne of grace, he will transform you fully and completely so that you can live his life. That's the good news of the gospel. And so he's declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead because he will raise you up to walk in newness of life. And we receive grace not so that we can go out and keep sinning. No, so that we can live an obedient life to this faith that God has called us to live because we are the called of Jesus Christ. Now let me tell you something. If Seventh-day Adventists understood and experienced just those six verses that we talked about, we would be ready for translation. We would be ready to be the servants of God, to be sealed in our foreheads, to stand on Mount Zion with the Lamb in the last days. And the truth of the matter is, we haven't reached that point yet. And so we are going to study the book of Romans this weekend to learn what the message is that will prepare us to stand in the last days. Does that sound like an exciting study to you? Do you want to stand in the last days? Do you want to be among the 144,000 that receive the seal of God in your forehead? The book of Romans is the book that contains the theology that if translated from the head into the heart will prepare you to stand when Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven. Let's continue on. And I'm just going to hit some high points here. We're, there's no way we can go through all verses of the first eight chapters. After Paul gives a brief overview of what he's going to talk about with respect to the theology of the gospel, verses 7 through 15, he basically gives a little introduction and he says, you know, those of you in Rome, I've been waiting for such a long time to come and preach this gospel to you. I've been wanting to come for the longest time, and I haven't been able to come. So now I'm just going to write you this letter because I want to preach the gospel to those of you who are at Rome. Rome was a great metropolitan center of the world at that time. If you look at the cities of the world in, in the first century, obviously Jerusalem, which was the headquarters of the Jewish nation, would be one of the key city centers. But Rome was the great metropolitan center of the world, and Paul had a great burden for that city. Now, it's ironic that in this message to the Romans, Paul gives the most complete theological description of the Christian gospel. And it just so happens that it was in Rome 
that the great Christian apostasy took place. So the Christian church at Rome eventually apostatized away from the faith described in the book of Romans. But it was the message of Romans that reached the great reformer Martin Luther and his understanding of the teaching of justification by faith in Romans helped to bring down the dark ages in the, in the Roman church during the 1260 years. So it was as if God knew that this message was especially relevant for Rome because Rome would turn away from this faith and yet Martin Luther, he was in Rome, he was climbing Pilate's staircase, he hears the voice, the just shall live by faith, it crystallizes in his mind, and he turns away from the teachings of Rome to the biblical teaching of the gospel, scriptural teaching of justification by faith. And here's the key, the last key application. In the last days, Rome will work to deceive all the world. But those who understand the gospel of God will not be deceived by the false gospel of Rome. If we understand the gospel in Romans, we will not be deceived by the false gospel of Rome. And that's, does that make sense? Okay. So, now let me read to you what Ellen White says. This is from Sketches from the Life of Paul, pages 187 and 188. It's on page one of your handout. Notice what Ellen White says about the importance of this book in Scripture. In his epistle to the Romans, Paul set forth the great principles of the gospel which he hoped to present in person. He stated his position on the questions which were agitating the Jewish and Gentile churches and showed that the hopes and promises which once belonged especially to the Jews were now offered to the Gentiles. With great clearness and power, he presented the doctrine of justification by faith in Christ. And let me say this. If you study the book of Romans, you will understand justification by faith. Continuing on, she says, While addressing the Roman Christians, Paul designed to instruct other churches also. But how little could he foresee the far-reaching influence of his words? Paul wrote this book in the first century. Here we are in 2012, on July 7, talking about this gospel here in Jamaica. Paul could have had no idea of such far-reaching influence. Continuing on, she says, the great truth of justification by faith as set forth in this epistle has stood through all the ages as a mighty beacon to guide the repentant sinner into the way of life. So this book, if you study it properly, will guide you into the way of life or of salvation. That means this is of utmost importance for us. Amen? And then she says, This light scattered the darkness which enveloped Luther's mind and revealed to him the power of the blood of Christ to cleanse from sin. It has guided thousands of sin-burdened souls to the same source of pardon and peace. And notice this last sentence, which I really like. Every Christian 
has reason to thank God for that epistle to the church at Rome. You realize we should be thanking the Lord for the book that we're studying today. And when I read that, that we should give thanks to God for this epistle, I just thank God that we have the privilege to study such precious truth. Amen? It's not just precious truth, it's present truth for our time. This is the message for our time, and we're going to see that now very clearly. So I've just sort of, sort of laid the foundation. Are you ready to start getting into the meat of Romans? Let's get into the meat of Romans. I'm really excited about this study. I've been looking forward to this for some time now. And I've studied the book of Romans several times, but every time I see something new. And I love every time I study Scripture. And so let's get into Romans 1, starting in verse 16. Romans chapter 1. This is where Paul... And actually, I'll start in verse 15. Paul says, So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. So he is going to preach the gospel through the written word. And you know, I'm glad that he preached it through the written word rather than the spoken word because if he had just articulated, articulated it orally, we wouldn't have what we have on paper here in our scripture. So what is it? that the gospel is. Let's read verse 16. Here's what Paul says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now this is the gospel. And Paul's going to spend the next seven and a half chapters explaining what he just said in these two verses. Let's break these verses down carefully. And I have these in bullet points in the handout. You can follow along if you would like. First of all, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. In the first century, you have to understand that from a worldly perspective, if you are going around and teaching, my God is powerful because he died on the cross. The first century mind would say, what? Your God's a loser. My God beats up all the other gods. Your God is so weak that he couldn't fight for himself and he died on the most shameful instrument that the Romans institute for the worst criminals. So inherent in what Paul is saying is that from a human standpoint, there would seemingly be shame that your God would die on the instrument of shame known as the cross. Sometimes we lose sight of that now. We just think of the cross and we blunt, I mean, we just sort of mindlessly think about Jesus died on the cross for my sins, so I guess I'm forgiven. And we don't think of how shameful it was from a human perspective for the God of the universe to die on the most shameful instrument that humans used at that time. But Paul was saying, look, I don't care what any human says. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. 
And you know, as God's last day people, now more than ever is not the time to be ashamed of our message. Amen? You know, the moment we begin to be embarrassed by the gospel, by the unique truths of Scripture that we present, we are falling away from the example of Scripture where Paul the Apostle, the servant of Christ, separated to the Gospel of God, even if from a human worldly standpoint you would look ridiculous, you would look shameful, he was not ashamed. And likewise, we should not be ashamed of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Why was Paul not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ? Notice what he says. He tells us why he's not ashamed. Here's why. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. You know, that is one that is such a profound statement that we often pass over. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Now, do you know what the Greek word for power is? What is the, what is the Greek word for power that Paul used? The word is dunamis. This word dunamis means dynamite. Or in other words, it's explosive power. What happens when you put a stick of dynamite into rock? The rock is blown away. It's changed. It goes from a hard... And don't make a the, I'm not making a theological point out of this per se. I'm just using this as an illustration. It goes from a hard, rocky substance to soft powder. Now don't use that theologically per se, but what I'm showing it to say is that dynamite changes you completely. The gospel changes you completely. The good news of the gospel is that what Jesus did for us is so powerful that it can take you, you who have been dead in trespasses and sins, and completely change you into something totally different. The gospel is not... Jesus died for your sins. Now you stay the same, but you'll go to heaven because you mentally accept the fact that Jesus died on the cross. That's not what Paul is teaching. He's saying the gospel is the power, the explosive dynamite power of God that transforms you completely unto salvation. And the question then is, wow, I want this. Who is it for? Is it just for the spiritual elite? No. Paul says it's to who? To everyone that believeth. And that's a key qualifier. 
It's not to everyone. It's to everyone that believes. Specifically, everyone that believes in its life-changing, transformative, explosive power. And it kind of goes right along with the theme of our conference, total transformation. The gospel is total transformation. It's explosive power. It changes you, transforms you totally and completely. Now, the question then is, if the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes, what belief do I need to have in order to receive this? Is that not a good question? If the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and if you have salvation, that means you will live eternally, and it's to everyone who believes, then I want to know what it means to believe. Does that make sense? Because in the book of James it says, the devils believe and tremble, but that doesn't bring them salvation. It's, yeah, the, the verse specifically says, you believe in one God, you do well, the devils believe also and tremble. So in other words, the devils believe that Jesus is God, the devils believe that Jesus died on the cross, the devils believe that Jesus died for the sins of the world, but they aren't saved. So it's more than a mental ascent. And we're not going to spend the time to talk about it right now. I'm just setting the table for you to think about what does it mean to believe? We're going to talk about it because in Romans chapter 3, this concept of the gospel being for everyone who believes comes back. And I'll give you a little hint. Romans chapter 4 talks about the faith of Abraham. And it says in Scripture that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So Romans 4 is going to give us an illustration. Abraham believed, God said, you are righteous. And if the, if the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, the point of Romans 4 is that if you believe the way Abraham believed, you will have salvation as Abraham did. So I'm just throwing that out there to sort of entice you to keep coming back. Because if you want to know how to believe, you need to know to, how to have the faith of Abraham. And that is the way to salvation. So we'll get to that when we get to Romans 4. But Paul is, is giving you sort of a foreshadowing. But he's giving us the whole message in these verses. So the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And what Paul is saying here was important for that time because the Jewish Christians had this mentality that salvation was of the Jews. And Paul is saying, actually, yeah, salvation is of the Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles if they believe too. And so this was groundbreaking, earth-shattering news that you didn't have to be a Jew to be saved. You could be any human being and have salvation. And I think all of us here can be thankful because I don't think any of us here are Jewish. I'm not. And I don't think any of you are either. But you know what? We are all one in Christ Jesus. So we can all have this salvation. Okay, let's keep going here. 
So this gospel is so powerful that it brings salvation to everyone that believes. Now notice, verse 17 shows the power of the gospel. Verse 17 shows the power of the gospel. Notice what Paul says. For therein. What does he mean when he says for therein? He's saying for in the gospel. Okay, so let's start again. Verse 17. For in the gospel, for therein, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now this is one of the famous passages in all of Scripture. How many of you have heard that passage before, the just shall live by faith? I think we all have heard that verse growing up as Christians. The just shall live by faith. Notice, the gospel is powerful because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What does that mean? What is the righteousness of God? It's not a trick question. Okay, and I'm hearing some good answers, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to make it a trick question, but let me just help you. The righteousness of God is the righteousness of God. Do you understand the significance of that? The righteousness of God is not the righteousness of Norman McNulty. Trust me, that wouldn't be a good thing. And it's not the righteousness of anybody else. It's not the righteousness of Eric Walsh, of, or Fitzroy Anderson, or of any of the other speakers of your conference president. We are all weak, sinful human beings. The righteousness of God is the righteousness demonstrated by Jesus Christ, who is God. So here's the power of the gospel. The gospel is explosive dynamite power that brings salvation to everyone, to everyone who believes. And in the gospel, the pure 100% righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. In other words, when it says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, He's saying the righteousness of God is revealed in all those who believe, who've received the power of God unto salvation so that they have the experience of justification by faith. When you have the experience where it says the just shall live by faith, what Paul is saying is those who believe, those who have, that experience of justification by faith have had an explosive, transforming, totally transforming experience so that the righteousness of God is revealed in their lives because they live righteous lives by faith. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, it's such an important concept that I'm going to explain it one other way just to make sure that what I'm saying is clearly understood. 
the gospel is so powerful because the righteousness of God is revealed in the lives of the believers who believe in the power of God unto salvation. So in other words, those of us who believe and receive this righteousness will be a living demonstration of the righteousness of God. Now that's a high calling, is it not? It's not our righteousness though. It's His righteousness. And that is why this message is so crucial to the last days. It's why it's so important to understand so that we can stand in the day of God because the Christian world at large is teaching that the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died for your sins so that you can accept Him as your Savior so that He will cover you with His righteousness so that you will still go on and but you'll still go on and live a life of known sin, willful sin, choosing to go against the Word of God, but yet you believe that since you've accepted Jesus as your Savior mentally, you will be covered by the righteousness of God. But there's a serious problem with that understanding. If you think that way, and if you live that way, the righteousness of God is not being revealed in your life. And that's pretty obvious. If you are living contrary to the life of Christ, the righteousness of God is not being revealed in your life. And the truth of the matter is, as Romans 3 teaches, all of sin and come short of the glory of God. So none of us can say that we have demonstrated the righteousness of God perfectly. But the amazing news of the gospel is that whatever our past record is, Christ can take us and change us through His power so that from this day forward, our lives can be a demonstration of the righteousness of God. And you know, Eric Walsh talked about that. He quoted Ellen White in Christ's Logical Lessons, page 69, where she says, when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. All she's saying in that statement is that when the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in his people, his people will have experienced justification by faith. And the devil has twisted the teaching of justification by faith so that we think we can receive a legal declaration from God that will cover a life of sin and we'll just kind of keep on sinning. And it may be even in subtler forms in Adventism because Adventists aren't going to go out and say, oh yeah, just go out and keep knowingly sin and Christ will cover you. What we say is, well, nobody's perfect and nobody's ever going to be perfect. So just do your best and Christ will cover you and you'll just keep messing up but you didn't mean to so it's okay but that's not the power of the gospel because at the end of the day the righteousness of God is not being revealed in your life and what we want to do what we want to see from the study of Romans is that we want to see how God can really take us from a life that has been dead in trespasses and sins and totally transform us so that we can be like Jesus. You know, we talk about wanting to be like Jesus. 
But if we really are like Jesus, it will be life-altering, life-transforming. Everything in our lives will change. Now, let me make some key applications here. And it makes sense to you when, when Paul says the just shall live by faith, you understand that that's talking about justification by faith, right? Because if you're just, that means you're righteous and you're living by faith. If you're just, you have justification. And if you're living by faith, you have justification by faith. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, let me read another quote from Ellen White for you. And this is where things get really interesting. Because this, this shows us just how important what we're talking about is for our time. Notice, Review and Herald, April 1, 1890. This is Ellen White speaking. Several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message, and I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity or in certainty of a truth. Justification by faith is the third angel's message. So if the just shall live by faith, if that message is the third angel's message in verity, that means that it's our message for our time. It wasn't just for the Romans in the first century. It is the message for our time. It is present truth. Amen? Now notice what she does next. So she says, it is the third angel's message in verity. And I've heard Adventists quote this statement many times, and I have myself, but they don't read the next part of the passage. Notice what she says next. The prophet declares, and this is, by the way, going to be the theme of my sermon tonight from the book of Revelation. The prophet declares, and after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. Do you know where that's found in Scripture? Where is that found in Scripture? It's Revelation 18, verse 1. It is the loud cry message. And then she goes on to say, Brightness, glory, and power are to be connected with a third angel's message and conviction will follow wherever it is preached in demonstration of the Spirit. You realize that Romans 1, 16 and 17 is actually the loud cry message. The power of God unto salvation where the righteousness of God is revealed in the lives of those who have experienced justification by faith. And Revelation 18.1, we're going to talk about this tonight, but when you have this angel come down from heaven and the earth is lightened with its glory, what that's talking about prophetically is that there is coming a time in earth's history where the glory of God or His character will be seen throughout all the world in the lives of God's people. And you know what? That day has not yet come. Has it not? We cannot yet say that Revelation 18, under the power of the loud cry, has had its fulfillment. And what Romans is teaching us 
It's teaching us how to experience justification by faith so that we can be part of the loud cry of Revelation 18 where the character of God is revealed through us to the entire world. Does that make sense? So when we talk about justification by faith, we're talking about not just a mental understanding of what righteousness by faith is. We're talking about an experience that leads to the righteousness of God being revealed through us so that the earth will be lightened with the character of God under the power of the loud cry message, which is the last message to warn this world before Jesus comes. So what we're talking about is so important because it's the message that prepares us for the final crisis. And it's the message that we really need for this time. You know, the reason why this message has not yet accomplished its work is because we as God's people struggle to understand the message. Justification by faith has been wrongly understood so that, as I said, people think they can receive a legal covering from Christ even though their life isn't transformed. And then this is what we say. We say, okay, I received salvation from Christ. Now I'm going to work on my sanctification. And since LMY says that sanctification is the work of a lifetime, I'll never really get there. It will just kind of, you know, I'll keep working on it, but I'll never be there. And when Jesus comes, then he'll take care of it. And that's how we as Adamists think. But you know, we misunderstand Ellen White's statement that sanctification is the work of a lifetime. Because here's what it really means. When you enter into the experience of justification by faith, you enter into the new birth experience, the moment of justification. In fact, Ellen White says, and it's in the handout in chapter 6, she says in Selective Messages, volume 1, page 366, God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. So guess what? Surrender of your heart to Jesus Christ is a prerequisite to receiving justification. And then sanctification is the work of a lifetime because it's a daily dying to self to retain your justification, to retain your surrender. So sanctification being the work of a lifetime does not mean that you will never get there. What it means is that every day is a new battle. You have justification by faith, sanctification, you're growing in maturity. Yes, you'll learn more and more and gain through the experiences of life a deeper, broader Christian experience. But it does not mean that your life is just way out there and you're, you know, you'll give up smoking this year and then maybe next year you'll give up gambling and next year you'll give up drinking. That's not what it's talking about. And then a year after that, maybe your evil temper? No. It means that the day you give your life to Jesus, your life is transformed into His image. 
There may be things that he doesn't reveal to you at that moment that you'll grow into, but everything that God reveals to you is surrendered at the moment of justification. There aren't things that you're still hanging on to where you don't have justification. If you're hanging on to things in your life that you know God has asked you to give up, you have not experienced justification by faith. Sanctification being the work of a lifetime is maintaining that daily surrender to Jesus Christ. And that's why it's so important to understand justification in connection with the third angel's message because when we experience it, it leads to the loud cry of the third angel. Now, I'll, I'll take questions at the end of each session, so hang on to that thought. Now, let me wrap up um, this concept and we'll take a brief break and we'll go into the next section of Romans. I want you to look on page two of the handout. It's on the flip side. Under the section, what makes justification by faith the third angel's message? Because we've read Ellen White's statement, she says it's the third angel's message, and I've just worked under that assumption. But let me show to you from Scripture why justification by faith is the third angel's message. We can show it from Scripture. First of all, this phrase, the just shall live by faith, is found only in four places in all of Scripture. One time in the Old Testament, in Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. So Paul is getting the concept of justification by faith from the Old Testament. So this is an Old Testament teaching. And Paul is the only New Testament author to expound upon it. He talks about it here in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. He also mentions it in Galatians 3, verse 11, and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. Now, what does the word just mean? Just comes from the Greek word dikaios, and this means just or righteous. Now, I think most Christians of all persuasions agree on this. To be just is to be righteous. To be righteous is to be just. Now, let's take it a little bit deeper. Can we find an example in Scripture of someone who is described as being just? There are a few humans that are described, but let me give you the illustration of the very best human being. Matthew 27, verse 19, Pilate's wife has a dream and sends an urgent message to her husband as Jesus is on trial. And she says, have nothing to do with this just man. And the word in the Greek is the very same as in Romans 1, where it says the just shall live by faith. And then in Acts 3.14, Peter says, you denied the Holy One and the just. Now, in the King James, the word just is capitalized, but in the Greek, it's the same word, dikaios, the just man, the righteous man. And in Acts 7.52, Stephen, just before he is stoned, he says, They have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have now, of whom ye have been now, the betrayers and murderers. So notice this. Jesus was just. Jesus is just. Jesus is righteous. It wasn't just a legal declaration of God to say that Jesus is a just man. 
Jesus was a just man because he lived a righteous life. And when Paul says the just shall live by faith, he's saying the gospel is so powerful because the righteousness of God is revealed in those who have the experience of the just who live by faith because the just who live by faith are righteous the way Jesus was righteous through his power. Isn't that incredible? That is the power of God into salvation that the gospel takes us who have been dead in trespasses and sins and when we believe and we'll talk about what it means to believe that dunamis dynamite power of God will work in an explosive transformative way in our lives so that we can live like Jesus lived. That is the power of God and that is the third angel's message. Now let me explain this a little bit further even. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. This connects some key concepts. Look at verse 16 of Galatians chapter 2. And this is what Paul says. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by what? the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So notice, Paul is saying we are justified by the faith of Jesus. And now jump down to verse 20. Notice what Paul says. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of who? The Son of God. That's Jesus Christ. So I live by the faith of Jesus Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. So notice this. When I am crucified, and he's talking about the old man of sin. When I am crucified, I am no longer alive. It's Jesus Christ who now lives in and through me. Now I'm still living, but it's not me anymore who's living. It's Christ who lives in me. So when I live, I live by the faith of Jesus Christ. In other words, when it comes time to exercise faith because Jesus is living in and through me, He exercises His faith in and through me. Do you see that? If you try to exercise your own faith, you're going to fail. But when you surrender your heart to Jesus Christ and He comes into your heart, he gives you His faith so that you can live a righteous life by faith. And in verse 16 it says, we are justified by the faith of Christ. And in verse 20 it says, when I am crucified, I live by the faith of Jesus. Does that make sense? So let me repeat that and let me get your attention here. This is a key point. Verse 16 I'm justified by the faith of Christ. Verse 20, 
when I'm crucified, I live by the faith of Christ. So that connects the concept of being justified and being crucified or being fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. In order to receive justification, I must be crucified with Christ. And when I am crucified with Christ, I live by the faith of Jesus because He's living in and through me. Now, when you think of the faith of Jesus Christ, can you think of how that connects to the third angel's message? How does the faith of Jesus... Okay, you're, so you're you're on the right the right track. Revelation 14:12. Revelation 14:12 is the the conclusion of the third angel's message, and we as Adventists should know this verse by heart. It says, "Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus." The third angel's message describes a group of people who have the faith of Jesus. How do you receive the faith of Jesus? To be crucified with Christ. When you are crucified with Christ, Christ comes into you and lives out his life through you so that when you need to exercise faith, he exercises his faith through you. And when you have that experience of being crucified so that you have the faith of Jesus in and through you, you can go back to Galatians 2.20 which says, you are justified by the faith of Jesus Christ. If you are surrendered, if you are crucified, you are justified by faith because you have the faith of Jesus Christ and you have the experience of the third angel's message. That's a powerful concept. Does that make sense? How many of you understand what I've talked about? Raise your hands. Okay, so many of you have ra raised your hands. Uh, sounds like I need to do a little better job for a few of you. Let me try this one more time. Justification by faith is the third angel's message in verity. In order to experience the third angel's message, I need to be justified. I need to be justified by faith. How do I get this justification? Galatians 2.20 says that I'm justified by the faith of Christ. But how do I get this faith of Christ? Verse 20 tells me I get this faith of Jesus Christ by being crucified with Him. When I am crucified with Christ, that means I surrender my heart to Jesus 100% so that He comes into my heart. As He comes into my heart, He can then exercise His faith through me. I then have His faith, which is the faith of Jesus, and that connects to Revelation 14, 12, which demonstrates that those who experience the third angel's message have the faith of Jesus. That is why the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message in verity. Because the third angel's message is a message that demonstrates a group of people who are like Jesus Christ. Because just as Jesus was willing to go all the way to the cross even though he didn't want to, we are willing to surrender our lives 100% to Jesus Christ. We're willing to surrender ourselves completely to Jesus Christ so that he can live out his life through us so that we are a demonstration to the world 
of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when a generation of Adventists not only understand this theologically, but have that message in their hearts experientially, then we will see Revelation 18.1 where an angel comes down from heaven and the earth is lightened with the glory of the character of Jesus Christ because we are like Jesus. And you know, when you think about it, sometimes we have the wrong perspective when it comes to salvation. Because this message is teaching us that we need to be crucified with Christ. But you know what we say? I just want to have assurance of salvation. How many of you have heard people talk about assurance of salvation? Now, assurance of salvation is not a bad thing. It's good to have confidence of your standing with Christ. But here's what happens when an overemphasis is placed on assurance of salvation. Rather than focusing on being crucified with Christ and of surrendering our lives to Jesus so that our lives are in conformity with the will of God, we focus on assurance of salvation and we ask questions like this. And I'm sure you've heard this question asked. Is this a salvational issue? How many of you have heard the question asked, is it a salvational issue? Is a, a salvational issue if I eat this kind of food or drink this kind of drink or wear this type of clothing or listen to this kind of music or watch this kind of TV? Well, if our focus is on Jesus died for me, He covers me legally, and we forget the crucified, surrendered, the surrender of the heart element of salvation, then we just focus on the legal aspect, and we say, oh, we're saved legally by Christ dying for us. We've accepted that. So it doesn't matter if we lower the standard a little bit. And guess what happens? So you lower the standard on whatever that issue is. I'll, I'll just pick the issue of music. So we introduce a certain type of music into our worship service. And I've seen this happen in my home country. You go from having a little drumbeat in the music at worship service to Adventist University students having a flash mob at the end of chapel. Something went wrong. Because I can tell you what, we're not going to be having flash mobs when we enter the curly gates. That's not going to happen. But when we put the focus off of being crucified with Christ and we put it onto what's the minimum I can do to get by and still have salvation, the standard is going to come down and down and down. And that's why Adventism in many ways today looks nothing like the Adventism of a hundred years ago because we have lost our focus of the message for our time. If we put the focus back on being crucified with Christ, here is where our focus would be. Jesus died for me on the cross. He risked his eternal existence to die for my salvation. He gave up everything to come down to this earth. I can love a God like that. And at the same time, when I look at Jesus in the eye, in my mind's eye, as I see Him hanging on the cross for me, how then can I say to my Savior and Lord, not just my Savior, but the Lord of my life, Jesus, I love you. 
But I'm going to keep smoking my weed. I'm going to keep getting drunk every once in a while. I'm going to keep beating my wife when I feel like it. I'm going to keep swearing whenever I feel like it. I'm just thankful that you died for me so that I can have salvation, but I'm not going to change my life. How can we say that to Jesus, who has done everything for us? And when we when we get the right mentality about the gospel, that the gospel is the power of God to salvation that takes me from being a grumpy, mean, old, angry type of guy who just does whatever I feel like doing whenever I feel like doing it and I'm not a very nice guy to be around when, I'm not, when I get in my mood and I'm this, that, and the other thing to being someone who is like Jesus so that my wife actually enjoys being around me all the time. And my associates enjoy to be in my presence. And the same with you, to be in your presence. Because they feel like they're around Jesus when they're with you. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. The good news that Jesus was made of the seed of David according to the flesh so that he could die for our sins and so that his example can lead us to follow in his steps. That's the gospel. And as I close this section, you know, the gospel teaches in Romans 7 that the law and the commandment of God is holy and just and good. When we, when we have the faith of Jesus, if Jesus is living out his life in us, if we're crucified with Christ, it becomes a pretty simple thing. If you're crucified with Christ and Christ lives out his life through you, do you think your life will be a demonstration of the law, which is holy, just, and good? Or is it going to be a demonstration of breaking the law? Obviously, if, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus and he lives out his life through you, your life will be a demonstration of Jesus Christ. And you will be a commandment keeper, which that's also part of the third angel's message. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God. And Adventists are now getting scared of the term legalism, perfectionism, because we're talking about keeping the commandments of God. But if you're surrendered to Jesus Christ, it's not in your strength, it's in His strength. And you're, He's living out His life through you. But guess what happens when you live a righteous and holy life that keeps the commandments of God? Notice Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. We all know this. It says, The dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. You know, the devil isn't going to worry about you if you're playing his games. But you know, the devil is going to take special note of you the way he took special note of Jesus when you start to experience this gospel. This gospel where the righteousness of God is demonstrated in your life so that you're keeping His commandments through the power of God. Scripture teaches that Satan has a special attack against the church of God that keeps the commandments of God. Don't let anybody put down obedience to the commandments because Scripture teaches obedience to God's law. The Gospel will produce obedience in the lives of the believers of Jesus Christ because Christ is living out His life through us. And when we 
have this experience. The dragon is going to make war with the remnant at the end of time. And this verse has certainly applied to God's faithful throughout the ages. But Revelation 12, 17 has a special application for God's people who will live through the great time of trouble. The group of people who are the servants of God, who have the seal of God in their foreheads, that is the group of people that Satan is going to attack. And 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 says that all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So as I close here, this is what the final battle in the great controversy is all about. Those who are truly righteous or just will keep all of God's commandments through the faith of Jesus and they will face the wrath of the dragon during the final time of trouble before the second coming of Jesus Christ. I want to be among those who are faithful, who experience justification by faith. Amen? So we're going to continue in the study. We're going to dig deeper now, come back, and we're going to get into some of the deeper elements of this message of justification by faith. Let's just have a brief word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the message of the gospel of Christ. May we experience it in our generation, and may we stand as the servants of God in the last days as this message is fulfilled in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.